This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Well, with all of the digital content we consume every day and the numerous devices that we have as well, it brings forth the concern that these materials are becoming more and more addictive. Now, addiction has been viewed in the past as the domain of alcohol and drugs primarily, but the concern of the impact of all of this technology on our brains has many people looking at how serious of an issue this could be. Adam Alter is Associate Professor of Marketing at New York University. He has authored a book about this issue called Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. And he joins us here in the studio today. Nice meeting you. You too. Thanks for having me. I, I get, well, I'll start with the business end of this first because on the back half of, the, of that title of the book, business is keeping us hooked. Yeah, And that, I know, it's part of the industry that we are all kind of around every day, but it's also a pretty concerning part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the technology that we consume now is delivered in ways that are very mindful. I think the companies that produce the devices that bring the technology and bring the information to us are very mindful about what they're doing. They are trying their best to ensure that we spend a lot of time on their devices. That's how they make money. And so I think it is a business, and I think they're they're very careful about the way they design the tools that deliver content to us. And, and I, I know that I would love to be able to sit here and say that there's no way that this can be an addiction. But seemingly, and as I mentioned to you beforehand, with my 10-year-old daughter, my 8-year-old twins, <laughs> I'm starting to see it and, and are concerned about it with my kids. So this is a problem that a lot of families, whether it be here in the U.S. or around the world, need to really consider to be a problem and not just something to push to the side. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very important to define addiction uh, when you're talking about behavioral addiction, because as you said at, at the outset, it is very different from the typical definition of addiction. So we usually think of addiction as the brain's or the body's response to a certain substance. This is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about experiences and behaviors. But what's interesting is that the body and the brain respond pretty much the same way to these experiences. So you see the same release of dopamine, which is a chemical in the brain that makes us feel pretty good. Uh, and you see the same behavioral responses. So you know, if you're told you aren't allowed to use your phone for the next week, for most people that produces anxiety. Uh, in fact, there was an interesting study done where a whole lot of teenagers were asked, you have a choice. You can either break your bone, a bone in your body, or you can break your phone. And what's there are two things that are funny about the I, response. I'm going to be worried. <laughs> I'm going to be worried, I think, because I know where the answer is going with this. Yeah, I think you will. Uh, so 46% of people prefer a broken bone to a broken phone. But even the people who say they'd prefer a broken phone, when you watch them make the decision, it's not like a snap decision. What should happen is you say, obviously, I'd rather break my phone. But what they do is they agonize and they start to think about all the things that could go wrong and what happens if I don't have my phone. And a lot of them say, at least when I'm recovering from the broken bone, I have the phone to comfort me. So this is, I mean, this really is an addiction. It's, it's pretty extreme. Why is it, though, that the, that the mindset in your mind has shifted so much from being willing, willing to deal with a broken bone to not have, you know, they're so worried about losing their phone even for an hour or two hours. I think the biggest thing, especially for younger people, is that phones are the way that they communicate with others. It's basically the backbone of their social lives. And so without a phone, you lose contact with people, which for humans is one of the worst things that can happen. We would rather physical pain than social pain than being ostracized or being ignored or left out. So I think for a lot of people, the idea of not having a phone is the idea of being out of communication. 
And so that's the biggest thing. But, but this, there are other things too. I mean, the, when you think about phones, the, the thrill you get when you check whether you have a text message or when you hear the ding of a text message or when you check how many likes you have on an Instagram post or whatever it may be, all of that is unpredictable. But when it works for you, when you get a lot of likes, a lot of shares, a lot of retweets and so on, that feels really good. And being deprived of that for a week for a lot of people is very unpleasant. I can't think about going... <laughs> a week with it. But it's interesting that, that I guess there's going to be a national day of unplugging mm-hmm. coming up on, on March the 4th or the 3rd end of the 4th. When you think about that, that obviously that is a great idea, but but how much of an impact could it really have? I think it's its function is not to stop people from using their devices on one day alone. I think it is obviously designed to do that. But what it should do is to show people what the world could be like if they did that more often. So one of the things I advocate is that people spend, say, three or four hours every day in a tech-free period. So maybe 5 p.m. to 8 p.m., your phone is in a drawer far away. You interact with people or with nature or whatever else you, you want to do. Right. And I think what this is designed to do is to give them a day where they have an excuse to unplug and to see how great that can be because we've forgotten. I think we, we now assume that the only way to live is with this tech surrounding us constantly. Well, as you mentioned before we started this, you're a dad uh, of a young young boy. Yeah. And you're getting ready to have a second child. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so your kids are literally born into this. Yeah. Uh, mine basically were as well. How much of a challenge is it now for parents to really adopt or, or I should say change their thinking, their thought process about this? Yeah, it's a massive challenge. It's a bigger challenge than I think it's ever been. So the, the kids now who were born into the iPhone and iPad eras are uh, 10, so the, the first iPhone was 07, yeah. and 7, so the first iPad was 2010. So any child who is younger than those ages was born into this new world. They don't know that there is an alternative. For those of us who are older, we have a sense of what could exist out there, what it's like to have a face-to-face conversation. Yeah. For a lot of these younger kids, we have no idea what their lives will be like when they're teenagers and then when they're, li- when they're adults. And I think because they'll have grown up in this kind of soup that involves all these things all the time, they won't know what the alternative is. It won't appeal to them, and it won't even be a viable alternative because their whole lives will revolve around tech. But there's also the concern about just the changing scope of having conversations with people. As you said, you know, we're both old enough to know, hey, listen, I'm going to go run over to my best friend's house, and we're going to talk, and we're going to go play out. That, that element has been lost over the last 10 years or so. And the concern is, I think, for a lot of people is that it may never come back. It may never come back. You know, at least we're nostalgic for that. If you're nostalgic <laughs> for something, you strive for it. And so yeah. we might try for the kind of contact we used to have with people. If you have a child who's never experienced that, there's nothing to be nostalgic for. It just seems like part of an era that's long past, part of the olden days. And so for those kids, they're not going to have that same pang and that's the concern, that it needs to be built back into the culture. Otherwise, these kids will just be deprived of it, perhaps, for their whole life. Social media is obviously a big part, uh, component to this. Uh, what are the most concerning pieces to social media for you, uh, especially with, with this kind of loss of connection? I think one of the biggest problems is when kids are young, they test things out in the, in the social world. So if I'm a, a kid and I'm talking to someone else, the way it used to work was I'd say something mean the other kid would scrunch up his face, he'd cry, I'd feel bad and I'd never do it again. That's if you're like most people. Yeah. That doesn't happen anymore. If you only interact with people online, you bully, you send out all sorts of bad vibes and you never really get the feedback. And so you never learn to empathize, you never learn what it feels like to hurt someone. 
And so I think what ends up happening is you have this blunted sense of how to interact with people. And that's pretty damaging across lots of spheres. I mean, it makes it harder to form social bonds. I think it makes it harder to work in the workplace as well. You, you obviously have to try and interact with people face to face in the workplace. But if the first time you ever do that is when you're much older, you've missed that critical period when you're younger where you learn what works and what doesn't. And that's one of the concerns for these kids. So it's a little bit like a, a, uh, a phony sense of freedom. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And, and what that does is it liberates you to be mean and to, to do things that are insensitive that perhaps you would learn not to do when you're younger because you see what the consequences are. Now, if you never see those consequences, you just keep doing that thing over and over again. That's human nature. So I guess we've, that's, that's part of the reason why we've seen what we've seen play out in the political election most recently here in the United States and, and to a degree uh, with, with a lot of other elements. Yeah, possibly. Absolutely. That's that's certainly a possibility. And I think so much of the election has played out on social media. And I think it, social media is an inherently negative vehicle for communicating information because you are either anonymous or you're removed from other people. You never have that feedback. It's easy to bully. I mean, the most negative thing in humanity is YouTube comments. You know, those anon anonymous comments on YouTube are just streams of invective. They're really incredibly negative. And I think a lot of this election was run in that same sort of uh, anonymized way where people threw all sorts of insults at each other from afar. It makes it very hard to come together if you don't have that physical connection at certain points. Well, I'll play off of what you just said with YouTube because there was a, a story recently that uh, Comcast is going to do a deal with YouTube to bring YouTube to their cable systems, which that's another kind of adding a layer of issue to this problem. I think so. I think what what has changed really with the introduction of the iPad and the iPhone is that all of these vehicles are now democratized, which means we all have access to them. They're inexpensive enough. They're widely used enough that they've become just a part of the network that we all live in. And I think if you bring anything to cable TV, which is also very, very widely used, you're only furthering that process. And that's that's obviously a huge concern. Once enough people have something, it becomes known as a network effect where if you don't have that thing, you really are missing out on certain aspects of cultural life. And so if everyone with a cable TV is using YouTube, you'll need to be a part of that as well. Adam Alter is our guest. He's associate professor of marketing at New York University. He is author of the book Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology in the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Playing off something you just said a second ago, uh, you think about it, there are many people – at least I see some here in the city of Philadelphia, who are probably at the lower end of the earning spectrum, yet they make sure that they have a smartphone. You know, I mean, it almost feels like there is a kind of similar to what you said with the broken bone or the, or, or the smartphone. There is a choice that some people are making in their financial world of, well, I would much rather have a smartphone than I would say – you know, a, a better pair of shoes or a jacket or something like that. Yeah, these things used to be seen as luxuries and they've all become essential. And that happens over time, partly because they drop in price, but partly because they become indispensable. It's, it's just very hard to do basic things. It's hard to work. It's hard yeah. to travel. It's hard to communicate now without these phones. So they become a part of what's essential about living. Instead of being wants, they become needs. Do these companies understand what we're talking about here? Do they understand the potential pitfalls? And do they understand that, that maybe they need to start thinking about this and addressing these as problems? They, I think they do. The big companies definitely understand these issues. Uh, Google has a person or had a person 
uh, on board known as a design ethicist. And his job was to basically advise them about any of the potential pitfalls with their products. So if they were designing a product that was particularly addictive, his job was to say, I think we need to tweak this thing so we make it maybe slightly less so. Or we need to add this feature here, which allows people to get away from this. Or, or whatever right. he was suggesting was designed to make the product friendlier to humanity, in a sense. And so a lot of these companies are not just aware of this, but they build in these experts who have the sole job of making sure that the products aren't predatory in some way. There's a, a phrase that I've heard used uh, quite often, and maybe you have as well, that content is king yeah. right now. And uh, there's no doubt about that because of the fact that that if you look at some of the the dynamics of TV viewing, they're they're much different than they were when we were than when we were younger. Uh, but it doesn't mean that that content isn't still finding itself being absolutely essential for a lot of people out there. Which degree, again, it's a little concerning because so much of that is stuck to our hip. Yeah. With the smartphones these days. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really the portability of the phones that makes them so dangerous. So this content is king, but it needs to be delivered to you in some way. So the thing about these phones is that, um, you know, if you stop most people at any point in the day and you say, without moving your feet, can you reach your phone? The vast majority of the population <laughs> will say yes. That could be in the middle of the night. That could be during the day at work. It could be pretty much any time, anywhere. And the answer for most people most of the time is yes, and that's because they wear these devices. They're in their pockets. They're in, att attached to their hips. They're literally right there. And I think that's what makes them so insidious, that they're always a part of what you're doing. There's even a study showing that if you have a phone upside down on a table while you're having a conversation with someone, the content and the, the, the connection that you form is degraded. You don't form as strong a connection with the person, even if the phone's upside down, because what it suggests to you is that there's a whole other world out there that you should be paying attention to. It reminds you that this isn't the only thing going on when really what you should be doing is focusing on that conversation as though it's exactly the only thing going on in that moment. So then where do you think the, 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 the most important points are that need to be addressed? Because we mentioned parents. That, that's obviously one part of it when you're yeah. talking about kids. But for adults who can kind of basically call their own shot and, and they can choose to either be stuck to the hip with it or not, how do you address that problem? It sounds so simple. That's the thing about it. It sounds like all we have to do is just say, no, I'm not going to use this or I'm going to put it away for a certain number of hours. That's obviously the first thing to try to do. The other thing you can do, which is interesting on smartphones, is you can sort of defang them. You can make them a little bit less potent. So one thing you can do is take off all the sounds that tell you that there's a new email, remove push notifications, yeah. make sure that the phone isn't telling you when to pick it up, that you're deciding it's time for me to pick it up. Uh, another really good thing you can do is uh, when you see an icon for, say, Twitter, if Twitter is your poison or Instagram or whatever it may be, that signals to you, I need to push this button. It's sort of Pavlovian. Like yeah. you, you are the dog that has to do the thing to get the reward. And... Um, the best thing to do about that is to bury those icons in a folder in like the third screen of your phone. And the only way you should ever access those apps that you find to be particularly addictive is to search for them by name. That way you're deciding actively when you want to check them instead of them signaling to you, hey, I'm here, you should check me out. Um, there are other things you can do as well. So a lot of social media works by you send something out into the world and then you wonder how much feedback you're going to get. Am I going to get one like, no likes? 10 likes, 100 likes. Yeah. And one thing you can do to defang that sort of quantitative feedback, those numbers, is you can use what's called a demetricator. And what it does is it changes the feedback from this sort of continuous scale of how many likes you get to whether you've got a like. 
So what it'll say is you have likes instead of how many. This has been shared instead of how many times. You have a comment or you have comments instead of how many. And what that does, it's at least the early evidence suggests, is that people just become less hooked on getting that constant updated feedback so they spend less time checking. The, the, the tricky part of it is also that, that there's an element to this where our cities, or our, our city governments are, are using social media, obviously, to inform us of negative things when they're happening. Unfortunately, a child would get abducted. They want to be able to send that information out. If there is a major storm coming out, they, they want to be able to get that information out there. So the governments themselves, who probably could be able to try and help alleviate some of this problem, need this just as much as we need it as well. Yeah. And I, I think it makes a really good point in that, um, you know, these phones and technology have utility value. They, they are useful in some sense. Yeah. So if you want to convey some emergency signal, there's no better way to do it than to tap into a network that's shared by millions and millions of people. But what you can do as the user of the phone is you can say, the only things that I'm really going to prioritize are those very useful things. So I'm going to make sure that when there's a signal that I need to know, say there's a storm coming, I will know when that happens. So you leave that notification on. You just turn off all the other ones. And we have the power to do that. Most people don't really know what to turn on and what to turn off. But if you use the rule, is this very useful to me? Is it something that won't be addictive, but that will teach me something useful when I need to know that thing? That should be used. But the other stuff, maybe not. I would think a lot of people don't even know how to be able to. I mean, seriously, <laughs> yeah. there, there's probably an element of people out there that don't know how to turn off those notifications so that they don't have that distraction in there. Totally agree. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of the times on a lot of phones, it's buried in the back of the, the settings section. Um, it's worth finding out, I think. If you feel that it's a problem for you and that you're spending too much time on your phone, the best thing you can do is do a little research, find out how to find these these notifications. But that's a design that the, that the companies who are making these phones are wanting to do. They want them as far away from the from the consciousness of the consumer. Very possibly. It's hard to read into the minds of the companies sometimes unless you have someone admitting that it's true. But from a business perspective, you probably should make your devices as addictive as possible because then people will buy them They'll keep using them, and they'll probably buy the next version. We're talking with uh, Adam Alter, who's Associate Professor of Marketing at New York University. He has uh, authored a book called Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked, uh, here on Sirius XM 111. Uh, the business, going back to that for a second, this is, this is something that, as we've said, you need to deal with because from the industry perspective, this is not going to slow down. Companies like Apple are, on an annual basis, going to come out with a new iPhone, Samsung the same way, iPads, devices, the home computer obviously has, has changed quite a bit uh, over the last few years. So how, how, do, we, how do we realize the, the, the issue that's kind of, it's, it's the proverbial, the bull in the china shop at this mm -hmm. point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's why you have to take the issue into your own hands and decide if this is a problem for you, you need to do everything you can to defang tech. So... Make sure that 90 minutes before bed, you don't use your phone, because if you do, it's going to harm your sleep. Uh, there's a lot of research on that. Ariana Huffington had a book recently published on exactly that topic. Um, it's very, very important to keep phones separate from sleep. That's one thing. Um, I just mentioned a whole lot of other ways of defanging your phones, making them less addictive. And, uh, you know, I think a bigger question is what should we do on a cultural level? How do we deal with this? There are some workplaces in Europe in particular that, that are very good on this front. So there's one company, for example, that has rigged its desks so they're hooked to the ceiling. And at 6 p.m. every day, no matter what you're doing, 
the desks rise to the ceiling, <laughs> telling you it's time to clock off. Right. And the place turns into a yoga studio. So huh. that workplace has a really good policy. Um, the, the car company Benz, the Mercedes-Benz car company, yeah. uh, they have something similar where if you go on vacation, there's an automatic message. If anyone sends you an email, the auto message says, your email has been deleted. The person you've sent this to will not receive it. Their email inbox will look exactly the way it did when they returned to work after their vacation. Here's someone else you can email in the meantime. So you know, vacation messages liberate us to some extent, yeah. but what ends up happening is you know either you're going to have to deal with this while you're away or you'll have to deal with it when you get back. And that's that's hell, those first two days back from vacation. But a lot of companies, though, don't think along that line, and they want you to have that connectivity even when you're away from the workplace. Yeah, it's a, that's why it's partly a cultural problem. It's very, very hard. I mean, it's very tricky. Businesses want, obviously, something very different from what consumers want in this case. Sure. Um, you know, another classic example of this is um, it's from the food industry, so it's a different example. But if you think of 100-calorie packs, you can now buy a lot of snacks that are unhealthy in 100-calorie packs, which is totally, totally irrational. Yeah. People are paying a lot of money for less food, and what they're really paying for is they're outsourcing self-control. I'm saying to the company that makes these snacks, give me less of this, I'll pay you so that I don't have to eat more of it than I should be. Instead of buying the bigger pack and just taking what you should be eating, you're paying the company to give you less, which is crazy from a consumer perspective. But there's something similar from, say, the Facebook perspective. They could create a version of their product that helps you with self-control in the same way that these food companies can do. They might say, we have a version of Facebook, you'll pay $100 a year, and we'll make sure that it's superior in the following ways. It's less addictive for these seven reasons. And that's a cultural change. And the good news is Facebook gets revenue because a lot of people will pay for this device. So it's good for business, but it's also good for the consumer. Great to meet you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Adam Alter, Associate Professor of Marketing at New York (laughs) University. The book, by the way, uh, again, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked is available in bookstores and online now. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.